Well, good morning. My name is Jared Perry. Uh, I don't know if many of you know me. I'm the youth pastor at our Southwood campus, and I'm very excited to be here with you guys today. This is my first time at Creekside. Uh, This is awesome. You guys do a fantastic job with the setup and everything in here. So um, we're going to be continuing in our theology series. Uh, And so I'd love for you, if you have your Bibles or if you have a phone, to go ahead and open up or turn to uh, Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians, uh, being one of Paul's letters, it's towards the end of the scriptures. Also, if you're a visitor, we want to welcome you today. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, This summer, we're here at Greens Prairie Elementary and and loving it. And so we're really excited to be here, but we'll move back to Rock Prairie in the fall. And so we're glad to get some time with you guys. Not Rock Prairie in the fall. Pebble Creek, sorry. That's on me. Just get to the scriptures, Jared. All right, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this truth and this reality, that we are saints, and we have been made saints by you, and that you are going about this process of making us into what you have intended, and that you are carrying it on until a day of completion in Christ Jesus that we can be confident in. Father, I thank you as I read this verse, I think of these people. I think of the thankfulness I have for them and their willingness to come and set up and and do church different uh, than what we normally think of, but they're willing to give up their time and sacrifice their Sunday mornings in order to make this happen, that your word may be proclaimed, that your gospel may be made known. And Father, I'm grateful for them. And Father, I pray and ask this morning that you would use this time and use my words, that this wouldn't be my speech, but Father, that it would be your truth that comes out, your wisdom that is made known. Father, we ask these things and we pray these things because we are desperate for you. We pray them in your son's name by the Spirit. Amen. So for those of you who don't know me, one of the first loves that I ever had growing up, the first sport that I fell in love with was baseball. Uh, My dad was a really good baseball and softball player when he was growing up, and I fell in love with the game uh, as I got to play with him and hang out with him. It was so much fun. I did Little League baseball, and I got to tell you guys, my Little League baseball team was really really good. We won the Little League Championship two years in a row, and so I don't know, experts are going to debate this, like the Yankees dynasty, the Patriots dynasty, and us. I don't know which one falls where as far as greatest teams ever, but we're up there, okay? We were really, really good. And part of that process in Little League as you're playing baseball is that, well, I don't know if they still do this, but whenever I was doing it is they gave out game balls at the end of every game. And so at the end of every game, you would get a ball that was signed by all your coaches and all your teammates, and they would give it to the player that they thought had made the best impact on the game. So, look, I, I'm not the most athletic person here in the room at all, uh, and was definitely not the most athletic of my siblings, so I think my coaches just felt sorry for me a couple times. And so I won two game balls. I was given two game balls in Little League. It was awesome. Uh, and I treasured those game balls. It was a sign to me that in the sport that I loved, that I had done something successful. I had been valuable. 
And so these game balls for me weren't just regular um, baseballs that I would just throw away or just kind of have in my baseball bag. I put them up on my dresser at home. And as a little kid, it was like even getting into high school and junior high, I had these game balls up on my dresser. And now part of my responsibility in the house was to, was to dust the house, okay? And so every, almost every Saturday, our family would get together and everybody had their own responsibilities and I would go through and I would dust the house. And so when I got to my dresser, I would carefully take my game balls off of my dresser and put them on my bed and I had my trophies up there, but they were special and they were important to me. Until one Saturday, I was going to clean off my dresser and I noticed my game balls were missing. And I started freaking out. I started looking around and I started going, where, where are these? Did they, could they have rolled off? Because I didn't have like a little stand for them. And so sometimes they would just roll off. And so I started looking around and I was looking in my room and looking in my closet, under my bed. I was going into my brother's room. I didn't know what had happened. Come to find out, I think my little brother, who was far more athletic than me, uh, and I take all the credit for that. If it wasn't for me blocking all of his shots when he was like four, then, you know, uh, he wouldn't be who he was today. But I think at some point, my little brother, who was going to practice baseball, had taken those two game balls off of my dresser. And so I, I vividly remember this conversation with my dad, who had taken him. And my dad is just weeping. I've not, I don't think, ever seen him cry like that. Because he knew how special these were to me. He knew that these were unique and special baseballs. These weren't just common. These weren't just normal baseballs that you would play with. But we got them back, and they were scuffed up and they were dirty, and the names had faded because they'd been treated like they were normal. Guys, in this theology series, we were looking at what does it mean to be set apart? What does it mean to be sanctified as Christians? And it means we're not normal. It means that God has called us to something distinct and something different, and he has put us in a special place and said, you are to be different than everyone else. And so this morning, we're going to dive into what does it mean to be different? What does it mean for us to be set apart for the Lord? And how do we participate in that? How do we take part in this process that God has called us to? So the first thing as we look at sanctification and we look at this idea of being set apart is we need a definition and we need a purpose for the term. We need a definition and purpose for sanctification. So let's look at it. I think a helpful definition for sanctification is this. Sanctification is the part of salvation in which believers are set apart. Now, that's helpful in that it's accurate, but it's not helpful in that it means much to us, right? Those are kind of some Christian-y words. What does that really actually mean? Well, let's break it down and talk about it, and let's look at where this word sanctification comes from in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for sanctification says, it showed up in this verse, among others. In 2 Kings 10.20, it says, And Jehu ordered... Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. And so they proclaimed it. Okay, Jared, that's not very meaningful. Let's give you some background here, all right? Jehu was one of the kings in Israel. And Jehu was a good king. And after years and years of Israel's other kings worshiping false gods, Jehu had come on board and said, hey, I want to lead my people into worship of the Lord. And one of the false gods they had worshiped had been Baal. And so he tells the people I want you to sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. Now, sanctify for us typically means a good thing, right? It typically means a holy thing and someone acting and doing something that is righteous and good. So how can we talk about sanctification in relation to an idol? 
Well, that's actually really helpful for us in understanding the term because what Jehu is telling the people is he wants them to set apart a place to bring all the idol worshipers because Jehu wants to get rid of the idolatry in Israel. And so sanctification here doesn't just mean some spiritual term, some spiritual reality of being good. It means set apart. Jehu's saying set apart a place that we can bring the idol worshipers so that we can deal with this spot in our heart. And so the Hebrew word for this term means set apart. We see this again in the Greek, in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus tells us, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When I was little, I always thought hallowed was related to Halloween, and it was kind of weird. I didn't really understand, like, hey, what does this term really mean? And sometimes we pray hallowed, and we don't really understand What does that mean? But this word is the same Greek word as we would use for sanctify or for holy. It means to be distinct, to be set apart. God, your very name is different than all other names. It is more special because of your character, because of who you are. You are distinct and set apart. And so when we pray this prayer, we are saying, our Father in heaven, how distinct are you? How special, how unique, how set apart are you? And so this term, sanctify, means to be set apart. But let's talk about a few other pieces to that definition. Sanctification is the part of salvation in which believers are set apart. This is important for us to recognize that salvation is a process in what the Lord is doing. And I think as we've looked through this theology series, we're talking through different aspects of salvation. And that's kind of weird for us sometimes. We're going, wait, my my salvation is a process? Well, yes and no. So salvation theologically is defined by three different ideas, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification being the moment when you are declared righteous by the Lord. Sanctification being this process of being set apart by God. And glorification being the moment that is coming when God's glory will make us into the perfected holy beings that he desires for us to be. And so when we talk about the Christian view of salvation, it's this whole truth and reality. Now, sometimes we talk about salvation as that moment that we're made right with God and we're justified. And that's true. That's a part of salvation. You are saved when God makes you right with him. But the reality is that the Christian salvation is so much more than just that one moment. The Christian salvation is so much more than just God saying, you have right standing with me. It's also God saying, I'm going to set you apart for good works and good things, and I promise you a future that is good. That is the entirety of the Christian salvation. And so, yes, it's accurate to say you were saved when you confessed your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, but also it's accurate to look at your salvation as a bigger process and bigger plan. And so this process applies to believers. Sanctification doesn't happen to those who have not been, who have not confessed their faith in the Lord and have not been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It just doesn't happen. This is what God is doing for his people to set them apart. So if that's the definition of sanctification, let's talk about the actual purpose of it. The purpose of sanctification is that God's people would be set apart to bring glory to him and be a blessing to others. The purpose of sanctification is that God's people would be set apart to bring glory to him and be a blessing to others. Let's see where we get that from. First, in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 through 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I want you to understand what's being stated here. 
This is not just a call to legalism or a call to you to make sure that you're taking care of your own righteousness. This is a call for you to be holy so that you can image God, so that you can be a reflection of who God is, so that other people can see that you are like the one who has called you and saved you and rescued you. The primary purpose of our sanctification, the primary purpose of us being set apart is that God would be glorified and other people would get to see his holiness through us. But it's not just that. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 21 says this, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. See, we're set apart as holy for good works, for good use, so that God could use us to do good things in this world. And doing the good things in this world are for the good of other people, that we might be a blessing to others. Guys, this is the purpose of sanctification, and I fear at times we completely lose sight of that. Whenever I was in college, my wife and I were about to get engaged. It was my senior year. She didn't quite know this just yet, but she knew we were on the track towards marriage, and it was, her birthday was coming up. And so I wanted to throw the best birthday ever. I wanted to be the best boyfriend for her. Shockingly, as an Aggie, who knows, I had been overcommitted the year before. I know, that's amazing. But I decided, hey, I, I want to make sure that I, I, I do. I love this woman, and so I want to show that. And so I threw her the biggest birthday that I could think of. I got all of our friends and all the people that I knew, and I added them in a Facebook group and invited them to our house and wanted to have this huge party where we got to celebrate her. The problem is my wife is one of the most intense introverts that you've ever met before in your life. And so I threw this party for her because, yeah, in my heart, I wanted to do this good thing. But ultimately, I threw the party that I wanted to throw and not the party that reflected what my wife truly wanted and needed. And so ultimately, this party that I did, this birthday was about me and not really about her anymore. It wasn't about knowing how she would want to be celebrated and knowing what she would want for her birthday, but it became about what I wanted and what I was getting out of this moment and how I felt like a better boyfriend and how I felt like I was having fun with all these people. In sanctification, we can do the same thing. This process that God had intended to be purposeful, that we might be set apart for him and to bless others, we can make all about us. We can make all about, am I feeling better about my own self-righteousness? Am I doing well enough spiritually that I feel okay with myself? And do you see how twisted that can be? That's never, ever, ever what God intended for this process to become. Sanctification has never, ever been about your self-righteousness. It has always been about glorifying God and being a blessing to others. And as we think about the purpose, we have to grasp onto that. We have to reframe our minds and understand that this process of being set apart is about him, and it's about others. So, now that we've looked at the purpose... Now we can try and understand the process of sanctification. So let's check this out. The process of sanctification is going to be commenced at justification. Now those are some big words, but I want us to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul tells the Corinthians, and such were some of you. Such is a reference to before this, he's been telling them of all the types of sins and sinners that exist in this world. And basically saying, hey, you could have been doing all of these types of things and others are doing them, but so were you sinning this way, and yet you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is really interesting. Remember how I talked about there's this three parts of salvation, 
And justification being the moment that you are made right with God when you, by grace, through faith, believe in him and are rescued and redeemed. But Paul's also telling us that even in that moment of justification, our sanctification, this process of us being set apart, is commenced. It begins. Because God, by making us his people, and by saying, I declare that Jesus' blood covers you, makes us different. He sets us apart from the rest of this world. And so our sanctification is commenced when we are justified. It begins in that moment. But not only does it commence the justification, it continues throughout the Christian life. It continues throughout the entire Christian life. And we see this in our Philippians verse. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. See, this verse is instructing us that God has began this good work and he is going to carry it on until completion. God is doing this now. This is part of what our Christian life looks like. There's no escaping that. And so I want to point out that this is the work that God is doing. Look here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. See that throughout our Christian life, God is the one who's moving and doing this work. And so As we talked about earlier, this tendency that we have to be self-righteous about our religion and about the good things that we can do, this verse is reminding us God is the one that's actually doing those things in you. This is not a work that you're doing in and of yourself. This is not some spiritual power that you have to white-knuckle your sin so that you can praise yourself for your own endurance and your own perseverance and your own strength. No. God does the work. And God of peace is the one who is sanctifying us and sanctifying us completely. And so what does that mean? God is setting us apart. We've been using that term. Actually, what does that mean? We get this idea in this verse. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants us to be distinct holistically. That your soul, that your spirit, that your body, every aspect of you, God desires for you to be set apart. We use the word blameless in this verse. But it's the idea that we would be distinct. It's the idea that we would not be like the world. And again, not so that we can look at ourselves, but so that we can reflect our God and bless others. That's what's happening here. Now, I want to go back to our 2 Timothy verse that we looked at a few minutes ago because this is helpful for us. Because sometimes when we say that sanctification in this process is the work of God, I end up like a college student that's sitting on my couch eating cold pizza spiritually, right? Like I'm sitting there going, okay, God, whenever you want to show up, just like whenever I'll study whenever, right? Like God, whenever you want to sanctify me and make me holy, you just do that. I'm just here, right? I'm showing up on Sunday mornings or I'm just doing these things and God, I'm here whenever you want to do stuff. No. Paul also says this, that even though God is doing the work, he says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Paul says, yes, God is the one doing in the work, but you are called to participate in this process. God has called you to be a part of cleansing yourself from unrighteousness. For us to step into this process and giving us an opportunity to be a part of what God is doing in our lives and in this world. And so you have a call, not just to sit around and wait for the Lord, but to be engaged 
in being set apart, to be engaged in being different, to be engaged in glorifying God and in being a blessing to others. And so what, what does that really look like? Why do we want to participate in that? Well, 1 Corinthians 3, I'm actually going to ask you to turn to. We've got this verse up. But if you turn to the left in your Bible, just a few pages, we're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, I've got verse 13 on the screen. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. And this is what Paul says. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. What is Paul saying here? That spiritually, no one can lay any foundation other than Jesus Christ. No one can rescue or redeem themselves other than Jesus. But upon that foundation of the rescue and redemption that we get through Christ, we participate in the building up of our spiritual houses and our spiritual structures. Okay? And so Paul talks about a number of different things that you can build with. You can build with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Now, I've seen the three little pigs, and I know what happens when you build houses not of good materials, all right? A wolf can blow it down. And if a wolf can blow it down, then fire's going to eat that thing up. And what the Corinthians are told by Paul is that there is a day coming when fire will test the house, the spiritual house that you've built. Now, this isn't a threat to your justification, right? This isn't a threat to whether you are, have a foundation of Christ. This is a threat to the structure that you've built upon that foundation. This is a testing of that structure. This is a probing to see, did you build well? Did you use your time well? Did you participate well in being set apart? It doesn't threaten the foundation. But the reality is that there is a day coming when Christ will return, and when he does, judgment will come. Judgment will come to unbelievers, but judgment will also come to believers. Again, not to threaten our salvation, but to test us to see what have we done. We see this in the parable of the talents that Jesus tells. As he has multiple, uh, he tells a story of a master who has multiple servants to whom he gives multiple talents, which was a term for, for money. And he gave them these, this money, and in this parable, some of the servants use that money well, and it multiplies. But one of the servants hides this, and out of fear, doesn't allow the thing that his master gave him to grow and make a difference. And when the master comes back, he doesn't kick him out. He doesn't say, you're not my servant anymore. But he does bring judgment upon how he used that talent. And in the sanctification process, we have to recognize we are called, we must participate in this process because God is coming. And when he does, he's going to evaluate what we've done with what we've been given. Now, there are some that disagree with us on this position. There are some that say that those who are truly saved must show the fruit of the Spirit. They must do good works. And if they don't, then their salvation is in question, right? If they don't show the fruit of what God is doing, because God is the one working, then their justification is something that we need to question and needs to doubt. Now, they're, they're coming to this conclusion because they read the Scripture and they love the Lord. 
They read the scripture and they read the warning passages that are throughout the New Testament about the dangers of living and walking and continuing in sin. And they're saying, if you do these things, you need to have real fear about your status in standing with God. You need to recognize the danger of living in sin. And they're also looking at the fact that, hey, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that God himself lives inside of you. And if God lives inside of you, then how is it possible that you could continue in sin? Many of my good friends from seminary hold this position, but we at Grace believe differently. We at Grace believe, and this is why it's important for us, I think, to be in 1 Corinthians. If you look at chapter 3 in verse 1, Paul says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. We believe that it's possible for true believers, like the Corinthians that Paul is writing to, to be walking and living in the flesh and living in sin, to not be set apart the way that God has called them to be set apart. We believe that we see that in Scripture, and we believe that we experience that within our own Christian lives because our sin nature has not been taken away. And so we say, thankfully, that our standing with God is not dependent upon our participation in this sanctification process. Our standing with God is not dependent upon our participation in the sanctification process. But there is a real impact on us not participating. There is a real true call and need for us to be sanctified, to be set apart. And so sanctification continues throughout the Christian life. And finally, it's completed at glorification. Sanctification is completed at glorification. Again, back to Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, that we can be sure and confident at the end, God is going to make us righteous. That at the end, this process, no matter how we participated, because God began the work in us, that we are secure in the future hope that we have and what he's going to do. Now, honestly, this is a lot, there's some differences, but this is a lot like becoming an Aggie, right? All of us got our acceptance letter. Some of you back in the day, you got the actual letter, which was great. You got the big envelope, maybe. For some of our younger people, maybe you got an email, right, that said, hey, you're an Aggie. And in that moment, you became an Aggie, right? Like you, like in spiritually, you have been justified. In that moment, you've been accepted, right? You have been welcomed into the second most amazing family on earth other than the church, right? It's incredible. And then you actually get to go to A&M though, right? It's not just that, hey, you've been accepted. Like you get to go to Aggieland and you can go and you can just sit in the chem lab uh, and I will feel sorry for you, but you can be a part of that, right? Like that can be your Aggie experience or you can go and you can get to go experience Kyle Field or Olsen on a Sunday or like you can go and be a part of the full Aggie experience. You can go to Muster. You can go to Silver Taps. You can be a part of big event. You can see what does it mean to really be an Aggie, and you can live out these four, five, six years as a member, a true member of this family. And then some people debate this, but your time as an Aggie can culminate either when you walk across the stage at graduation or, for most of us, when you get that ring, right? When you have that moment that says, I've done enough, and now, right, I'm finished 
right? And now I'm a former student, right? For the rest of my life, I will be known as an Aggie because I've had this degree or I have this ring. But it's a process. Being an Aggie is a process. It starts with that acceptance. It goes throughout your time in Aggie land. And it ends with that great moment of getting that ring and walking across that stage. Spiritually, this process of sanctification is similar. It begins when you are made right with the Lord. It continues throughout your entire Christian life. And there is a day coming, I can be sure, you don't have to pass the classes, right? Like God has promised that there is a day coming when he will do what we need him to do and he will make us right completely, finally. And so this is the process of sanctification. It's commenced at justification. It continues through the Christian life and it's completed at glorification. Okay, so if that's the theology, how do we practically live this out? If that's what we believe about sanctification, what does this actually look like to be set apart? I think there's a really great quote from Martin Luther in a defense and explanation of all articles. He says, This life is not godliness, but growth in godliness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not now what we shall be, but we are on the way. The process is not yet finished, but it has begun. This is not the goal, but it is the road. Now, Luther was one of the original reformers. Luther was looking at what the Catholic Church was practicing and teaching about salvation in the Christian life. And he was saying, this is not correct, guys. We have lost what is true about our Christian faith regarding salvation, amongst other things. And so he makes this statement after much study and must invest, much investment into what does it mean to be a Christian? How do we practice? What does it look like? And he says, this is not the goal, but it is the road. We are walking on a road of being set apart. And God calls his people to participate in that process. So let's see what it looks like for you. In order to do this, God wants us to move from evil to good, from sin to good works. And as you look throughout Scripture so, so often, the majority of the time, God will tell you, don't do this thing and go do this thing. This is not just about you getting out of your sin. That's a part of this. In order to be blameless, we must not be sinful, but we also must be pursuing good. We also must be blessing others and glorifying the Lord in our goodness. And so I want to talk about a couple areas in which it can be hard for us to struggle with this movement from sin to good works and how we might participate in this process of what God's doing. The first issue we want to talk about is idolatry of self to a posture of humility. From sin to good works for us can start with idolatry of self. Now, for so many of us, that might look different. We talked about self-righteousness. We talked about this idea that you would make your spiritual life about feeling better about yourself spiritually. That you would make it about how you're doing compared to other people. Well, I went on this mission trip. Well, I showed up at church this day. Well, I'm doing this thing. And that coworker or that friend is doing this in their marriage or doing, doing this at the bar. I know this thing about them. And for so many of us, our life 
can become about where we stand with the Lord and idolizing our own self-righteousness. But idolization of self doesn't just look like that. It could also be idolization of your own desires. Idolization of what you feel and what you want. Uh, Our youngest son, my wife and I have two boys. Our youngest son was diagnosed with uh, special needs uh, a few years ago. Uh, And man, that was really hard on me. Um, And I turned to our community here at the church, and it was great. But I also turned to Dr. Pepper because it's amazing, right? And, but I'm being serious. Like, I didn't know how to deal with that reality. And so I sought comfort in food. And I sought comfort in things that I thought would make me feel better. And I made that an idol. I made that something in my life that I thought would bring substance and value and comfort into my heart. Now, I'm pretty convinced Dr. Pepper is going to be in heaven. Like, I'm not knocking Dr. Pepper. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is my heart attitude. What's wrong is the fact that I was idolizing this desire that I had. I was idolizing these feelings, and I was pursuing whatever I wanted to try and find comfort for myself. But not only do our selfish desires get idolized, we also can desire or idolize our thoughts. And I think about this a lot, given all the things that's happened in this last week. I think about how, at times, it's easy, as I wrestle with the brokenness of this world, to want to have the answer. It's easy for me to want to believe that I know how to solve all of these problems, and I understand all of these situations, and I can idolize my own intelligence, and I can idolize my own ability to understand the truth and understand what people are feeling. But the reality is that there is brokenness and mourning on both sides that I do not understand. I don't get it. I don't understand what these people on either side are going through. But sometimes it's easy for me to believe that I know what's right, that I know what's good, because I've idolized my own thoughts and my own ability to know truth. And so as we move from idolatry of self, we want to move to a posture of humility. We want to move from an idolatry of our own self-righteousness to a posture of humility towards others. And so it's not just that I don't want you to be self-righteous. It's that I want you to be encouraging the righteousness of others, okay? So for you, maybe that is you find a way to encourage those in this community who are coming and helping with setup every Sunday morning. Maybe you write them a note. Maybe you bring them something in the mornings to help them out. Maybe you step in and offer to serve a week to give them a break. That you are laying down your own righteousness in order to promote and encourage the righteousness of someone else. We've got to move from sin to good works. Maybe it's laying down a selfish desire for food, an idolatry of food, an idolatry of something physical that you seek to make you feel better. And you say, man, that thing, I have to give up. I have to lay that down. But I have to lay that down in order to honor God and to bless others. And so maybe one way that you do that is you commit yourself to seeking wellness in other ways and you encourage other people to come alongside of you. It's not just about you anymore and your own physical wellness and your own personal health, 
but it's about somebody else stepping in with you. And you saying, hey, would you want to go to the gym with me? Hey, I'm going to go do this thing. Or hey, I'm struggling. This is going to take a lot of honesty. I'm struggling with idolizing food. And I need to give up this thing. For me, it was Dr. Pepper. Would you be willing to join me in that? And allow somebody to participate with you in that process. Allow someone to become a friend, a brother, a sister, a part of your community. Maybe you're idolizing your thoughts. Maybe you're struggling with believing. You know what's right in a crazy, crazy world. And so maybe the opportunity you can take to come tonight at 7 p.m. and pray and mourn. The Bible calls us to mourn with those who mourn. The Bible calls us to be peacemakers. The Bible calls us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And maybe, maybe instead of, at times on social media, I want to just get on and and just say the things that I think are going to fix it. Say the statement that I think is going to make things right. But maybe we need to stop. And I know I need to just stop and listen. Listen to people on both sides and really attempt to hear what's going on. Hear what they're saying. So that we can be peacemakers. So that we can make a difference. So that we can be truly a part of this process. Another idolatry that we have is an idolatry of sex. In this culture, it's easy to idolize sex. And we want to move from that to a posture of thankfulness. And maybe you're here and you're single, and your idolatry of sex is, I want it and I don't have it. I, I want to be in a relationship and I don't have that. And so it's making you bitter and it's making you make choices and it's making you do things outside of a marriage relationship that the Lord has said that's not okay. And so in order to be set apart... How can we engage and step in to this process? What does that look like for you? Same thing can happen within marriage. That for whatever reason, in marriage, you may find yourself sexually unsatisfied. And in that moment, you may go, Lord, I'm so frustrated. And that thing can become an idol to you. If I just had this, if I just had more of this, I would be happier. My life would be better. And so again, you begin to look outside of the marriage covenant that you made to find that happiness because you're idolizing that moment. And for some people, even a healthy sexual marriage relationship can become an idol. It become a thing where you are finding so much joy from that, that that you just want more and more and that you are overemphasizing and overconfident in what you're getting from that connection with your spouse. And the Lord says, we're called to be different than that. We're called to be different from our culture. We're called to not be driven by this thing. And like Dr. Pepper, it's not like sex is bad, right? It's a good thing. The Lord created it and gave it to us. But we're called to move from an idolatry of it in toward good works for it. And that means for us that we don't make it the number one thing. That no matter where you are in that spectrum, that one of the best things that you can do maybe is to pray for others that aren't in your group. So if you're single, maybe one of the best things that you can do is to begin to pray for other marriages. That if you are married, to pray for our single members of our community. 
But ultimately, Blake Jennings, I think, did a great job in giving a sermon about sin in Genesis chapter 3 and recognizing that sin comes down in the beginning with Adam and Eve to Adam and Eve not being grateful for what the Lord had given them. And so as we think about idolatry of sex, I think one of the best things we can do is move towards a posture of thankfulness. And if that's a struggle for you, if that's an issue for you, taking time to actually write out and spend some time confessing to others what has God given you that you are practically thankful for can be helpful. Because it's, that's a positive use of your time because it reminds others of what God has done. And no longer is it about you and what you're experiencing, but it's about God and what he's doing. And finally, there's an idolatry of safety, I think, that hits our culture sometimes. It hits me. We were in Colorado this past week with my family, and I was freaking out all the time. We've got a three-year-old, and everywhere he went and everywhere he walked, I was, like, worried about every single thing. Is he going to fall? Is he going to get bitten by some crazy bug? I don't even think there are, like, a ton of bugs in Colorado. But I was freaking out, like, I want my kids and my family to be safe. And we can idolize that safety for ourselves. I want to be in a place where I'm comfortable and I'm safe. And Lord, I want to have control for our families. Gosh, God, I want my wife and my kids to have great things and I want them to be safe and I don't want them to be under threats. And for our future, God, I want to know that my future is secure. I want to know that I'm going to be financially okay in this crazy world. Now, again, none of that's bad. We shouldn't be running headlong into dangerous situations or throwing our kids off like mountains, right? Like that's not, that's not what God's calling us to. But when we idolize safety, when we make it the primary focus of our lives, we miss out on opportunities. And so God says to go from an idolatry of safety to a posture of trust where we want to put ourselves in a position for the Spirit to move by showing that we are trusting the Lord. So with yourself and your family, man, one of the best ways to do that, can I be honest with you, is to have a conversation about one of our missions opportunities, right? To put yourself in a situation where you're engaging with a different culture that's different than what, you've, what you're doing here, right? We've got multiple trips that we do for each campus that go to different countries overseas. We take our youth students to, to Germany. We've got kids leaving today to go to Houston, to go into different parts of Houston to engage different cultures and communities. I'm not sending them into war. That would be not wise and stupid, right? Like I am taking my kids, though, into situations that are out of their comfort zone in order to make a difference for the gospel. Maybe it's engaging with someone of a different culture who's in our community here in Bryan College Station, and it makes us a little uncomfortable. Maybe it's inviting them into your home. It's just different. But we're going to say, I trust the Lord in this process so that I can go and make disciples like he's called me to. And it doesn't have to just be the people that I work with and the people on my street, but it can be the people in my community and the people in this world that I can engage with my family and I can engage with myself. And finally, as we move from the posture of idolatry of safety to a posture of trust with our future, man, giving is so important to what we do here. That we have so many ministries that reach out to needy people in this community that don't have the ability to financially support themselves. And I've seen Grace over and over and over again be able to give because of the faithfulness of the members of this community. And honestly, 
I'm so floored by what we do here at Grace and by the giving that we see. But I want to encourage you to continue to think about that, to continue to stay faithful there. As Paul talked about at the beginning of the Philippians chapter, I've seen you do these great things and I've heard these great things about you. And so we need to continue in that. We need to continue in reminding ourselves that the idolatry of the future is something we have to lay down in order to place our trust in Christ and doing so by sacrificing ourselves monetarily. Again, not being unwise, but recognizing that there's a bigger picture here. There's something more going on. And so sanctification is this process of us being set apart. But ultimately what I want you guys to remember is this is not about just fighting our own sin because it's not about our own righteousness. This is about us doing good work so that we can glorify God and so that we can be a blessing to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for, again, for this time that we've had to come and hear this truth. Father, I pray and ask that you would move and work in this place, that you would allow us to be people that are moving from the evil and wicked brokenness that's in our lives to be people who are peacemakers, to be people who are trusting in you, to be people who are making a difference in this world by reflecting your holiness and your glory. And Father, we ask these things in your Son's name by the Spirit. Amen. Thank you, guys. You're dismissed. Y'all have a great week.